Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. This was a happy town. It was a good town, they said, to grow up in. Because I love this little old town. It's the only place I ever knew. I might could have done better going somewhere else. But then on the other hand, I said, no, I don't think so. I I had no reason to leave, but I don't like what I see. But there's nothing I can do about it. It's a victim of times. It is 6.21 a.m. on the 21st of September, 2020. It's, yeah, it's a Monday, so, eh. I can't do, I can't help you with that. It's a Monday and we're all living through it. This is episode 289 of Bitcoin and... I'm going to BitBlock Boom 2021, bitches. That's right. Yeah, I got my confirmation uh, yesterday after paying, oh, I think it was like 480 bucks or something like that for everything for next year's BitBlock Boom. Uh, Gary is limiting the ticket sales apparently, right? at least right now. I mean, he may change his mind. You never know what, what the hell Gary's going to do. But he's limiting it to, I think, 300 people. So if you uh, missed it this year and you want to go, by all means, get your damn tickets now, man. Get get, get them now. Um, and yeah, I totally missed. Uh, I totally forgot that he was giving us a really good offer for the people that attended Bitblock Boom 2020. We had like until the 15th or something like that to buy, you know, uh, special price tickets that nobody else was going to get to. And like a dumbass, I, I didn't. So I uh, saw an email. Uh, I guess it was last, like, yeah, late last night. Uh, Gary sent out an email saying, okay, you dipshits that forgot to actually take part of a special price. Uh, we're kind of extending it a little bit, but I think, I don't think it's as much of a special price as it was if I had bought before the 15th. So anyway, thanks Gary. I, I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you. Okay. Uh, first thing out of community news, I only got a couple of things. I'm going to do this one first though. Let's make sure that I'm doing the right one. Yeah. Uh, uh, God. So Okay, NASDAQ and CME plan to launch water futures to hedge price risk based on California water index. Quote, with nearly two-thirds of the world's population expected to face water shortages by 2025, what better way to make sure that they're all fucked but, you know, throwing out a NASDAQ and CME water futures? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Dude, this is bad. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care if you are just like, no, man, futures will, will make everything okay. No, no, not when it comes to shit like water. This is bad, man. This is Enron scale bad, okay? This is Enron scale bad. Um, let's see, I'll give you just a couple of, uh, I'm going to read a couple of sentences here from this story. 
New futures will help California water market users hedge price risk and provide a regulated, market-based solution for managing risk to the most active and dynamic water market in the United States. The world's leading and most diverse derivatives marketplace, CME, and NASDAQ, a global technology company serving the capital markets and other industries, today announced plans for a new futures contract based on NASDAQ Velez California Water Index, or the NQH20. CME Group will launch its new NASDAQ Velez California Water Index futures contract in late fourth quarter, pending regulatory review. The Velez California Water Index futures will be an innovative, innovative, an innovative, sorry, innovative, first of its kind tool to provide agricultural, commercial, and municipal water users with greater transparency, price discovery, and risk transfer, all of which can help to more efficiently align supply and demand of this vital resource. <clears throat> Enron. Enron. The chances of this not being an Enron type thing is zero. Zero. I'm holding my hand up making a zero sign. It's fucking zero. This is the worst possible thing ever. Okay. And it has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but it just riles me up because we're talking about water. It is not going to make shit transparent. It is not going to help price discovery. It's going to do exactly dick, except get people in real trouble. I'm just saying, man. And if California would allow water in the high elevations to be captured by the people that live there and the landowners that, that, that live there, instead of forcing them to let go and run out to the DMC and then have to actually get the infrastructure involved to uh, pump water back uphill, you know, we pro they, they probably wouldn't be in this situation, honestly. Because even if, even if people were allowed all over California to capture the water and use it on their land, you know what would happen to that water? It would end up going to the sea anyway. <laughs> I just, there is no, there is no end to the amount of stupid in this idea. There just isn't. So now that that's out of my system, let's get into trestless coordination free mining pools. Jeremy Rubin is writing this out of utxos.org. And yes, this is still kind of community news, okay? <clears throat> In a typical mining pool, miners work together to create a shared block reward. The shared reward is distributed among participants based on difficulty shares. That is, partial work proofs that prove a miner was working on an appropriate block. An appropriate block pays the reward to the pool operator who then distributes less a fee, the reward to the other miners. Using op check template verify, miners can instead look at a set of qualified historical blocks deterministically, e.g. the last N or all blocks not older than sometime T or blocks between T1 and T2. I guess T is standing in for time and share their block reward with the miner behind those blocks. Opcheck template verify is an enabling technology here because it is cheap to issue remittances to all these miners. A block would be considered qualified if it followed the same pooling rule. To participate in such a pool, a miner has to have enough hash power to mine at least one block to enter the pool. Then the system can reduce the variance that a miner is exposed to as determined in the picture. 
Trusted mining pools can set still exist to get miners up to a reasonable level of hash rate to participate in the trustless pools effectively, but these pools would be smaller and bear less risk. This type of mining pool has no trusted operator and requires no coordination. This eliminates various types of mining pool attacks, such as block withholding. The below code shows a simple simulation of experienced variances among a set of miners with a fixed sharing policy versus a set of miners without any sharing. Now, I'm, I'm not going to read the code because it's just it, it's just a long line. I mean, if you want me to actually sit here and say, you know, read you def sim parentheses n underscore miners equals 100 comma p underscore shares equals. If you want me to do that, then you're going to have to find some other Joe. Because I ain't going to do that. But what this does mean is that for the, like, apparently using OpCheck template verify, you can have a Bitcoin mining pool that is literally just entered into by a whole bunch of miners. And there's just no, there's no central party. There's no central guy. There, there's literally nobody. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, there's nobody there except the miners. No company. No, like, you know, it's honestly, I'm kind of, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because it just seems it's like now all of a sudden a mining pool can just be out in the ether, no company name, no nothing, just a whole bunch of people mining Bitcoin together. I don't know, man. Sounds like it's would be pretty sweet anyway. Okay. So now. That's all the community stuff, and we are now in directly into the news. Now, <clears throat> I took part, like I think it was, was it like way like a like a week and a half, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that I actually spoke to Tim Copeland from Decrypt.co, and he kind of interviewed me for a piece that he was doing on uh, sort of like how it is that that I fell down the rabbit hole. And it was actually, he was doing a piece on how a lot of people fell down the rabbit hole, but it, the, the thing came out. Okay. So I'm now, I'm, I'm famous, ma. September the 18th, 2020, Tim Copeland is writing it for decrypt.co. Why we get obsessed with Bitcoin. Bitcoin can be addictive, but what sparks that initial obsession? Here's why people become Bitcoiners from the minds of the most hooked. Yeah, no shit, dude. You've probably seen the comic posted in one of many online crypto communities, an adaptation of a popular Reddit meme. A jolly little character offers up two games, one adventurous, the other challenging. His friend asks about a third option, and then he gives the, the panels of the, of the cartoon. If you don't know what we're talking about, don't worry about it. It's not critical to the story. Quote, when you play that game, the first little guy replies, days will blur together. Regular meals are a thing of the past. Friends will become concerned, and the whole time you'll be unsure if you're even having fun. That third game is, of course, Bitcoin. That's very true. That comic is familiar to those of us in the crypto industry, from traders staying up until the early hours to crypto journalists working day and night to cover the fast-growing space. We all relate to it, and that's why it makes us laugh. But what is it about Bitcoin that initially grabs us and sends us down the rabbit hole? Why do these lines of code reach out of the computer screen, grab our imaginations, and pull us in? During four interviews with diehard Bitcoiners, Decrypt identified some common traits. A dislike for authority, (laughs) with a political stance that leans towards libertarianism. But while they revel in Bitcoin's attributes as a hedge against inflation or its security, it wasn't those factors that initially drew them in. Rather, 
it was the moment that they first used Bitcoin or were able to visualize it that flicked a subliminal switch. So while the current narratives are important, what gets us obsessed with Bitcoin is something a little bit more intimate. <clears throat> On a day in September 2015, David Bennett, that's me, senior administrator at the Texas Tech University, felt confined. <clears throat> he was at work in his cubicle. And it was a cubicle lit by a lamp instead of the overhead fluorescent lights that were never turned on. The office was so buried in the middle of the gray, chunky, concrete building that was the university's library, he couldn't even hear it when it rained. An event that, in the southern end of the High Plains desert landscape, would typically bring everyone running to the windows. Bennett looked at his monitor. He was just about to send 0.2 Bitcoin, worth $80 at the time, from his Coinbase account to Jack Spirico of the Survival Podcast so he could become a member. He had heard about Bitcoin online a few years ago, but it was only from listening to these podcasts that he was starting to learn more. He popped in Spirico's address and hit send. It quickly dawned on him that there were so many things he hadn't done. He hadn't put in his bank account details, his home address, his telephone number. He hadn't authorized someone to take payments from his account. There would be no phoning the bank up to complain that further scam payments had been taken from his account. That was it. Done. He felt liberated. Quote, that started the whole trip down the rabbit hole, he told Decrypt. Quote, I sat back. I didn't say anything then, but later told my coworkers about Bitcoin. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Actually, I'm not sorry. I'm just sorry that I probably hammered you over the head with it a little too hard. Bennett soon became a regular listener to of Bitcoin educator Andreas Antonopoulos, as well as Trace Mayer's weekly Bitcoin Knowledge podcast. Finding himself ill-content with just one podcast episode every week, he set up his own called Bitcoin And, where he discusses news on a daily basis. To this day, he continues to maintain that Bitcoin is a weapon, but in the words of Parallax Digital CEO Robert Breedlove, one of peace. Okay, let's get on to the Phil Gibson one. Uh, it was a cold day. Phil is like one of my favorite taco plebs, by the way. It was a cold day in late October 2019 when Phil Gibson, a software salesman, drove home from his lunch hour. His friend had convinced him to buy a range of altcoins, such as Brave Browser's basic attention token and business-focused syscoin on crypto exchange Binance, only the friend had warned him to get a VPN first. Standing at the kitchen table with his laptop out, Gibson tried paying for NordVPN, but his debit card refused to work, flagging an error message. He tried his credit card, still no dice. He got on the phone to his bank to find out what was going on. While he was waiting on hold, it dawned on him, dawned on him, that it was probably to do with what he was buying, the customer service assistant came back and confirmed his suspicions. Gibson was angry that the bank was banning him from spending his money how he wanted. He ignored the idea of calling his local branch and looked for another way. He noticed the VPN provider accepted Bitcoin, so he took out Cash App, bought Bitcoin, and paid for the VPN directly. Quote, once I saw that it worked, it was just amazing, he said. Quote, Bitcoin is F-U money. <laughs> it's a hell of a drug. While he had heard about Bitcoin in 2017 during its epic run to 20,000, this was the moment he truly understood its value. It slotted straight into his libertarian-leaning beliefs, and he started bringing Bitcoin information, such as the Bitcoin Audible podcast. <clears throat> oh, sorry, not bringing. Binging. Yeah, no kidding. We do it a lot. He started binging Bitcoin information, such as Bitcoin Audible podcast by Guy Swan, but there was one little thing about Bitcoin that, unlike the fiat money he had in his bank account, really resonated with him. Quote, 
it's mine. Even if I do sound like Gollum. <laughs> Economic student Marty Bent was sitting along or alone in the library of DePaul University in Chicago one evening in the summer of 2012, summer of 2012, outside of his evening classes. He had spent the day working at a managed futures fund where he wrote almost exclusively about central banks and monetary policy. With his anti-authority bent, it was clear to him that governments were getting it all wrong. Quote, I was pretty glued to what the central banks were doing for three to four years. In the depths of QE2 and QE3 Operation Twist, I quickly learned the central banks didn't really have any idea what they were doing, he said, referring to examples of quantitative easing and bond buying by the Federal Reserve. In that moment, he wasn't studying for his economics lesson the next evening, nor was he preparing for the next day's commentary at his day job. Instead, he was on Bitcoin Talk, poring over everything there was to know about Bitcoin Bent said, I was reading up on Bitcoin and getting a better understanding of the technology and the monetary policies behind it, and it sort of clicked. Bent soon started making Twitter lists of prominent Bitcoiners to keep track of what was going on. In the winter of 2013, he used his bonus check to buy his first Bitcoin for $800. Soon after that, it shot up to $1,200, and driven by the feeling of euphoria, he was suddenly telling his co-workers all about it. Bent now writes a daily newsletter called Marty's Bent and is host of Tales from the Crypt podcast, both of which are focused, as you might expect, on Bitcoin. In early 2017, Robert Breedlove was at his home office in Las Vegas reading a paper on his iMac. Breedlove was a libertarian who had long wondered about money, what it was, and why governments had monopoly on it. He had read a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. In one Christmas, he even handed out copies of an abridged version called Dishonest Money to his family. So it's unsurprising that, at that very moment, he was reading Nick Zabo's explanation of smart contracts and technology for coding agreements between two parties. Breedlove had known about Bitcoin for several years, but it was at this moment when he finally got what it was for. Quote, when I read Nick Zabo's work on smart contracts, which was actually written in the late 90s, that was when I had my light bulb moment and said, oh my gosh, this whole finance industry is basically this intermediate function that could be disrupted by smart contracts, end quote. It was Zabo's example of a vending machine that struck him, quote, a canonical real-life example, which we might consider to be primitive ancestors of smart contracts is the humble vending machine, Zabo wrote. At that moment, Breedlove could visualize how Bitcoin or Ethereum could play the part of the vending machine, removing the need for the legacy finance industry while rivaling or yeah, rivaling state-backed fiat currencies. That's when I realized that the tech was really going to be a big deal, he said. Soon came He soon came to believe that it was Bitcoin that had the strongest foundation to disrupt the concept of money. After reading the Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amis, he devoured books by economists Ludwig van Mises, Murray Rothbard, and Friedrich Hayek. He went on to become the CEO of Parallax Digital, which invests in Bitcoin-focused products, and has written a 62-tweet-long thread that sheds light on Bitcoin in an exotic... or Exoteric? exoteric nutshell okay all right well uh (laughs) that's an interesting way to put it i suppose anyway so that was that was fun talking to tim copeland uh about sort of how i fell into it and uh it's it's interesting the most interesting part of this is 
Tim's interpretation of what I, what I said. It's not that he got anything wrong. It's just hearing it come back out of somebody else is like, I don't know. It's in, it's in a completely different wrapper than what I was thinking of in my mind. So anyway, that's all of that. The percentage of the world using Bitcoin equals the entire internet usage in 1995. Let that sink in. This is U.Today. Joseph Young is writing it <coughs> for, uh, let's see, on uh, September the 19th. The percentage of the world utilizing Bitcoin is the same as the internet usage in 1995, showing how early BTC is in its growth phase. The percentage of the world population using Bitcoin is equivalent to the level of internet usage in 95. The data shows that while the entire cryptocurrency market is at a nascent phase, it is a relatively high growth. Dan Held, a Bitcoin analyst in charge of growth at the cryptocurrency exchange Kraken said, quote, percentage of world using the internet in 1995 was 0.5% of the world using the internet 2020 equals 60%. Percentage of the world using Bitcoin in 2020 is 0.5%. What do you think the price will be when 60% of the population is using Bitcoin? End quote. According to the data from blockchain.com, the number of unique addresses on the Bitcoin blockchain network hovers at 687,000 <clears> compared to levels seen throughout 2018. Immediately after Bitcoin crashed from its record high, Bitcoin users user activity is noticeably increasing. Bitcoin is evolving into a well-organized store of value and a potential hedge against inflation. Many investment firms, public companies, and high-profile billionaire investors hold BTC as a safe haven asset, most notably MicroStrategy, purchased $425 million worth of BTC as the firm's primary treasury asset. Yet, the market capitalization of Bitcoin remains at around $200 billion. In contrast, the valuation of gold, the most dominant safe haven asset, remains above $9 trillion. The probability of Bitcoin's long-term success as a store of value increases with its survivability. <coughs> In June of 2020, J.P. Morgan strategist led by Nicholas... Sorry, there's no way I'm pronouncing that name. Said that the strong recovery of Bitcoin from its March crash shows that it has staying power. From March to August, within five months, the price of Bitcoin rebounded from 3600 3, to above 12500 J.P. Morgan strategist wrote, quote, that suggests that there's little evidence of run dynamics or even material quality even material quality tiering among cryptocurrencies even during the throes of the crisis in March as time passes the bitcoin blockchain network would become more resilient to the perception of btc the perception of btc as a store of value would strengthen that's an odd sentence <clears throat> considering that BTC is at an early stage of growth, like the internet in the 90s, the Winklevoss twins believe that BTC will eventually compete against gold. Tyler Winklevoss, a billionaire Bitcoin investor who operates the U.S.-based exchange Gemini, explained, quote, Nonetheless, we believe that Bitcoin will continue to cannibalize gold and that this story will play out dramatically over the next decade. The rate of technological adoption is growing exponentially. Software is eating the world and gold is on the menu, end quote. In the near term, it is critical for the infrastructure supporting Bitcoin to improve. More liquidity, trading platforms, custodian services, and investment vehicles are necessary to lower the barrier of entry, especially for institutional investors. Over the longer term, a stronger infrastructure would help alleviate BTC from an emerging asset 
to an established safe haven asset among retail and institutional investors. Okay, so um, that's an interesting take on where we're at in the history of Bitcoin. And I know everybody's like, oh, it should be much more by now. I don't know what it is that everybody really wants out of, out of Bitcoin. I mean, from a, a time horizon thing, I mean, I keep hearing all these people talking about, oh, well, you've got to lower your time preference. Yeah, but then some of these same people keep bitching about how Bitcoin is lacking in this and that and this and that. It's like you you scream, pay, have patience, and yet you have no patience of your own. That's That kind of shit will get you in trouble, okay? Domain registration service Namecheap now accepts Bitcoin via BTC Pay. This is kind of important. Nick Chong is writing it for uh, btctimes.com on September the 18th. The Los Angeles-based domain register service Namecheap on September the 17th announced that there will that they uh, sorry that it will be supporting Bitcoin payments made through BTC Pay, an open-source self-hosted cryptocurrency payment processor focused on security, privacy, and censorship resistance. Namecheap Chief Executive Richard Kirkendall revealed the move in a tweet. I'm gonna have to follow this dude. Uh, it's at Namecheap CEO is Richard Kirkendall's or Kirkendall's uh, Twitter account. This is not the company's first foray into Bitcoin. Namecheap has been accepting Bitcoin for years with a Twitter user going as Henrique Bastos mentioning Namecheap's acceptance of the asset in 2013. In the original release announcing the integration, Namecheap wrote, quote, Namecheap is a customer-focused domain name registrar and web host. For months, Bitcoin has been our has been requested of Namecheap along the or among the tech audience. We're pleased to announce that we've listened to your feedback. Namecheap continues to innovate and respond to threats and challenges in the online space. We consider ourselves the pioneers in the space in innovation and freedom. End quote. Namecheap. <clears throat> Namecheap's decision to integrate BTC Pay comes after a number of services customers said that they preferred that payment processor over its competitor BitPay, which Namecheap has long supported. Alex Call, a software engineer working on Bitcoin software, wrote in August of 2019 on Namecheap, quote, Hi, Namecheap. Just wanted to let you know that I'm going to transfer my domains to another register as soon as my balance will be close to zero if you don't change Bitcoin payment processor. No more top-ups via BitPay, end quote. Namecheap's decision to double down on Bitcoin payments comes shortly after private aircraft vendor Aviatrade and French food delivery application Just Eat both began accepting Bitcoin. Namecheap embracing Bitcoin is in line with the sentiment put forth by Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter and Square. As the BTC Times previously reported, Dorsey recently told Reuters that he thinks Bitcoin is the best manifestation of the Internet's desire for a native currency. He added that Bitcoin has an edge over altcoins due to its network effects. The increased availability of Bitcoin as a payment option at international companies seemingly backs up Dorsey's sentiment that Bitcoin is on track to becoming the Internet's currency. Okay, so this is good. I'm glad that they added BTC Pay because BTC Pay is probably the most important open source project that is working in the Bitcoin space right now. I honestly I honestly believe that. I think it's absolutely the most important 
project that's going on right now outside of the Bitcoin protocol itself. Okay. So, I mean, and you know, lightning is important too, but BTC pay server makes shit so ridiculously easy. It's, it's frightening. It is absolutely freaking frightening just how easy BTC pay server makes everything work. Now, <coughs> BitPay is one of the crappiest, I don't even want to call them a Bitcoin company anymore. And the reason that, that this is said and is correct, by the way, is because of their stance during the SegWit2x debacle and the, the whole issue of, of bigger blocks. They did not defend the Bitcoin network. They instead tried to attack the Bitcoin network. And in their mind, I guess they thought what they were doing was right, but it was bullshit. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed what um, Michael Saylor was saying about Bitcoin. He said, you know, I, I had tweeted it out and also put it on the show. I think, I think I put that snippet on the show on Thursday, I'm pretty sure. But if you didn't hear that show, basically he said, look, I don't care that you're pissed off about high fees and I don't give a shit about your ideas that you want to put into to Bitcoin. He's like, what I do want to hear is somebody who's going to put millions and millions of dollars into the system is that you're going to defend this shit to the death, that you're not going to attack it, that you're not going to compromise it, that you're going to simply defend it. BitPay didn't. They didn't defend it. They did everything that they could to attack it. Fuck them. Hope they'd burn. Okay. The blockchain future of higher education. Okay, this is actually out of insidehighered.com. It is a you know journal or a journalist website specifically about higher education, i.e. going to college. And here we are with them actually starting to write about. Honestly, this can end up being nonsense, but let's just go ahead and do it. This is Ray Schroeder writing September the 18th, 2020. As higher education slowly adapts to the fourth industrial revolution, Spurred by the COVID crisis, students and industry are recognizing the need for a technologically supported way to document the full array of learning in the classroom and beyond. Soon to disappear will be the notarized paper transcripts that are controlled by the university. In the past, these 19th century type documents have been subject to withholding for unpaid fines and fees. They've been sl they have been slowly processed before sending via sluggish snail mail they do not include details of non-credit learning outside of the classroom. Even learning within classes is not defined or documented. This leads to confusion as to exactly what knowledge and skills students have learned. Blockchain originally uses the backbone of ledgering. Digital currencies such as Bitcoin is not new to academe as a validation system of learning. It has been used to support secure dissemination of academic credentials since 2015. The Director of Learning Innovation at the MIT Media Lab, Philip Schmidt, began issuing non-academic digital certificates in that year, quote, <clears throat> or not really quote, but whatever. Schmidt had realized that despite the risk of decentralized informal online learning opportunities, that was no, there was no digital way to track and manage these accomplishments. He said he became interested in finding a more modular credentialing environment where you would get some kind of recognition for lots of things you did throughout your life. Soon, Learning Machine and Schmidt's team at the Media Lab discovered that they had a mutual interest in developing secure official records and began to collaborate throughout 2016 using Schmidt's 
team's prototypes, they developed an open source toolkit called Block Certs, which any developer or school can use to issue and verify blockchain-based education credentials. Uh, hurts. Following the model of the early Block Cert toolkit offered by MIT, a growing number of universities have begun offering secure digital credentials via blockchain. Among the many advantages are credentials are digitally secure. Students can own their earned credentials instead, instantly sharing them when and where they choose. Digital badges can provide a model starting point for integrating entries into the blockchain. Details are stored on the ledger by the institution, so entries are more than the course name and number. They can also include topics mastered and even examples of work. Credentials are expandable. Non-credit activities and accomplishments, such as internships, can be certified and stored on the student's credentials. Now, it goes on, but there's no reason to actually do this. In a way, while I always cringe when people say, oh, we're just going to put it on the blockchain, there are certain things that may make sense, um, like um, identity is one of them, but you can just use Bitcoin, honestly if you wanted to. Um, and the other, one of the other ones is like, I don't know, I suppose there, there's a, a push by Ragnar and I can never pronounce his last name uh, to put real estate on the blockchain and it kind of didn't work out, but that's not, a, it's not that it's a terrible idea. It, it becomes terrible when you try to do it either A, with your own token of value or no token of value whatsoever. And it's when you release your own blockchain with your own token of value that I really cringe. I'm like, you can just do this shit. You can just, just build second layer for Bitcoin. That's it. That's all you really got to do. Otherwise, you just kind of blow in smoke because nobody is really going to support, quote unquote, that blockchain. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spin up a node for it. Why would I? I'm not going to waste my time. Although I will say this. Education, like credentialing, digital badging, I actually really like these ideas. Um, I, I, it, it, there are times when it, it, I mean, it's happened before that a college will close before a person who got their degree from that college is dead and is still act, having, you know, having to actively look for a job. And because of that, they can't, I mean, they're literally, they cannot get a hold of their transcript. And unless they, you know, put one in a safe, they're never going to get that transcript again because the college is just done. It's not often, but it has happened. And in that particular case, having something that's digitally secured that shows your progress and all the grades that you made and what you were able to learn and master and all that kind of stuff is an act is actually a very good idea. It's just, I just don't, the whole blockchain, do you really need one? Do you really, really, really need something as, as grindingly slow and horrendously inefficient to save a whole shit ton of digital data? Uh, there's other ways that this can be done. I don't think blockchain solves this, but still... The fact that they're talking about it leads leads me to the fact that well now they're they're starting to get it. All this is going to do is it's just going to be a cascade effect into Bitcoin. That's all that this really really means. 
And before we end and get into uh, running the numbers, I'm going to do this short one from Hel- or from Amelia David out of Cointelegraph for Cointelegraph.com. <clears throat> September the 19th, 2020, Yearn Finance founder nominates himself as Uniswap delegate. Oh, really? Who? How could this possibly go wrong? Yearn Finance founder Andre Cronje, or however you pronounce this, it, this scammer's name, Puts himself up as a delegate for Uniswap, hoping to influence the governance of the protocol. In a tweet, Conjay, Cronjay, whatever, said he will build tooling to facilitate delegation, off-chain voting, and on-chain enforcement. If made a delegate, he added, quote, At this point, I do not think it should be a rush to incentivize liquidity pools. This can be abused by me. I believe that we have an opportunity to reevaluate the tokenomics and distribution. We can help die and SUSD reach PEG. We can provide support for further development in, quote, Uniswap announced it wants to bring in a diverse and highly qualified set of protocol delegates who will discuss governance issues over the protocol and its token Uni. According to the network, this governance structure allows Uni holders to be responsible for ensuring the protocol meets compliance standards. Uniswap leadership already promised that they would not participate in the protocol's governance. As soon as Cronjay announced his intention to be a Uniswap delegate Followers asked if it is his intention for the Wi-Fi ETH pool to be included in the Uni liquidity pool. He said, quote, at this time, no, it would attract Wi-Fi holders to provide liquidity instead of using it for its intended purpose, such as governance. Yeah, governance of what, you dipshit? I believe there is a better value add that can be done for the overall ecosystem by utilizing Uni incentives and other proposals. To add on to this, there are also other market incentives that can help the overall ecosystem better. A DAI US, or SUSD pool, for example, can help both DAI and SUSD peg. Simply incentivizing liquidity is not a positive sum. This can also be easily abused as exit liquidity, which is probably what you're planning, isn't it, Crone J? Crone J previously showed some disdain over the state of the decentralized finance or DeFi sector, as Yearn shunned releasing a governance token for its decentralized lending platform. Within three hours of Uniswap releasing Uni, 13,000 Uniswap users immediately claimed their free 400 Uni. Binance and OKX both listed Uni, and the token has emerged as one of the top 20 DeFi tokens. So, yeah, I nominate myself for president of... I don't know, some X and, and, but I promise I'll be a good little boy. It's complete bullshit. Don't buy it. Let's run the numbers. CNBC.com forward slash futures and commodities. We have energy futures down across the board. Oil, West Texas Intermediate is down 2%. Brent is down, down damn near 2%. Natural gas is down one and, I don't know, a third. Metal futures, everything is down. Gold is down 1.2%. Silver is down 2.5%. Platinum is down 1.7%. Let's see, index futures, there we are. Dow futures are down damn near 2%. S&P futures are down a point and a half. NASDAQ futures are down a point and a third. S&P mini is down damn near two points. So there you go. Now let's talk about real money. Bitcoin is also down. Everything is down. 
We are at $10,632. I have a high over at, let's see, where is it going to be? Nope, that is, that's my high, and I don't know where it's from, but I do got a low. GDAX is listing it at $10,586.80. We have almost 300,000 transactions in the last 24 hours. That's about 12,000 transactions on average per hour. 2.6 million BTC have been sent around the horn in that time. That means that about 110, 111,000 BTC are being sent on average per hour with the average transaction value being 9.17 BTC. And the median transaction value back to where I'd normally used to see it months and months ago, 0.029 BTC or about 300 bucks. Block times are still excruciatingly fast. Eight minutes and 53 seconds on a per block basis. Now the reward per block is gonna be about a quarter of a BTC. And, or no, that's a fee, not the reward. The fee, David, the fee. Good God. The, re the fee of the last 24 hours is a total of about 41 BTC. We have had a, uh, let's see, a rise of about 2.5% in hash rate, and that brings us up to 139.5 exahashes per second. Ethereum is at 353. Bcash is at 216. Litecoin is at $44, uh, BSV is at 147 Ethereum Classic is at $5, Doge taking it on the nose at 0 0.0027, and yet with 39,800 transactions in the last 24 hours, it beats Ethereum Classic and Bcash, but not Litecoin. Litecoin has had an explosion of transactions 122,000 transactions have been performed on Litecoin's network in the last 24 hours. I still don't know what the hell's going on with that. If somebody knows what's going on with Litecoin and why it's all of a sudden become this weird darling, please let me know. I have no idea what the hell's going on. But Clark Moody does at bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard. He's got a price of $10,608. When he runs the numbers, he gets 18,495,977.33 BTC in, in circulation at this time. There are 7,000 transactions that are going to have to take about eight blocks to clear. Lightning Network, we have 1,100 and a half BTC in the Lightning Network. That gives us about $11.7 million worth of liquidity spread across 7,503 nodes representing 37,263 uh, channels. <clears throat> Tor capacity dropped just a fraction, 50.4%, and now we have 554.29 BTC on the Tor side of the Lightning Network. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to round two of the morning roundup. Helen Parts is writing this for Cointelegraph sometime very early this morning. Wisconsin Assembly candidate is accepting Bitcoin donations again. Cryptocurrency is money, argues a Wisconsin State Assembly candidate. Uh, Phil Anderson, a real estate broker and entrepreneur, now accepts cryptocurrency donations for his assembly campaign. According to an official statement by Anderson, crypto donations are available via major cryptocurrency payment service provider BitPay. Oh, just use BTC Pay Server. 
Anderson said that his campaign is accepting crypto donations despite regulatory uncertainty from the Wisconsin Ethics Commission. Back in 2018, Anderson accepted Bitcoin donations in his campaign for governor of Wisconsin, despite the WEC finding them a serious challenge to compliance with state law. According to the candidate, the WEC failed to arrive at a decision regarding the legal status of crypto donations in the state in 2018. As such, the Wisconsin Assembly candidate is challenging the regulator again, arguing that the WEC declined to interpret its own rules competently. Anderson believes that crypto is a legitimate way to make campaign donations because cryptocurrency is money. The candidate promises to push for the laws to be friendly toward cryptocurrency in Wisconsin. Quote, I refuse to give in to ignorance and bureaucratic incompetence. People have the choice as to how they contribute, and it's my intention to honor those choices. If my opponent or the Ethics Commission are interested in challenging me, I'm ready for a fight, he said. A number of political candidates for various offices in the United States have been accepting crypto's donations for their campaign. Andrew Yang, a former presidential candidate, was accepting Bitcoin donations for his political action committee. In 2019, in August of 2020, Representative Tom Emmer uh, from Minnesota also started accepting campaign dono- donations in crypto via BitPay. Again, just use BTC Pay server. But... <coughs> I, I'm kind of like, you know, I like what, uh, Phil Anderson is saying. I, I mean, ignorance and bureaucratic incompetence, the failure to interpret their own rules competently. I have to agree with everything that he said there. I mean, you know, and it's good that he's just, he just basically gave up trying to be the good little boy because with the amount of laws and regulations that are in our path, the only way that you can be a good little boy is to chain yourself to your bedpost and not do anything ever. That's how bad it is. So when you've got a guy who just basically throws it away and says, you know what, I'm doing exactly what I'm going to do. If you've got a problem with it, then you need to come after me because I'm tired of trying to interpret your stupid bullshit. That's how I see it. I wonder how Cubans see it. Let's find out how Cubans are using Bitcoin to skirt U.S. trade embargo. Uh, Portal du Bitcoin, uh, I guess is a news outlet out of, probably out of Cuba, uh, is writing this one sometime yesterday for Decrypt.co. Cryptocurrencies are a way to be a little bit more integrated into the globalized world, said Eric Garcia Cruz, a Cuban resident who uses YouTube to re- teach locals how to use Bitcoin to skirt government restrictions in the United States trade embargo. The Cuban government curbs internet access and a U.S. trade embargo restricts imports. Cruz, creator of the uh, Beige Cubano channel, thinks that Bitcoin could help Cubans get around the roadblock. For six months, the 33-year-old Havanan has been teaching his 28,000 followers how to buy Bitcoin and jump into the throngs of global markets. Quote, I believe that cryptocurrencies are a magnificent solution to thousands of current problems in Cuba. That's why we want to teach and give the best ways to use them to solve our daily problems at all costs, the influencer told Portal Do Bitcoin. Cruz said that the market for technology products is completely controlled by the state and is limited to state-owned stores. High-tech products only arrive when citizens, family members, and tourists bring products, usually from the United States of America, on commercial flights. These products are sold through informal networks. That's how Cruz buys equipment that he presents on his channel. Cubans also don't have access to credit or debit cards. Cruz only managed to access the money he made from his YouTube channel when a close family member who lives in the U.S. shipped goods to China. 
Cruz says that the COVID-19 pandemic has seriously affected these informal trade markets, which is depressed at the moment, as there are no commercial flights. Demand grew, but supply became chaotic. That's where Bitcoin comes in. It allows Cubans to participate in the global economy without relying on informal markets. For Cruz, Bitcoin provided financial freedom and greater control of the money that he earns. Quote, this is why... We are looking for solutions that allow Cubans, for example, to buy cryptocurrencies, trade them in international markets for other currencies and operate with them, he says. Cruz wants to teach his followers how to use cryptocurrencies for transactions. He also wants them to uh, He also wants to want them about the many pyramid schemes and attacks that seek to attract the uninformed. Oh, that's a terrible sentence. He also wants to want them. Oh, that's a Really, man, okay, I'm just skipping over that. Six months ago, Cruz posted his first video on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. He started to teach his followers how to buy Bitcoin from Cuba. Cruz demonstrates that Cubans must buy cryptocurrency from people who buy the coins from abroad or have relatives to do so. If Cubans don't have any friends or relatives willing to buy or sell Bitcoin on their behalf, Cruz said that the groups on WhatsApp, Telegram, and web platforms make it easy for easy for buyers to find sellers. Thanks to cryptocurrencies, Cubans can make purchases on major international sites and subscribe to digital services such as Amazon and Netflix. However, because all this relies on informal networks, cryptocurrency is usually sold above market rate. But since it's the only way for Cubans to buy Bitcoin, they don't have many other options. Oh. Is it good that our brothers to the South are starting to get into this? Okay. Speaking of decentralized bullshit, Uni drops 30%, but crypto locked in Uniswap nears 2 billions. Decrypt staff is writing this for Decrypt.co sometime yesterday. The governance token of decentralized exchange Uniswap fell by 30% overnight from its all-time high of $7.37 to its current price of $5.13. Trading volume for the coin also collapsed from yesterday's daily average of $6 billion to $2.2 billion today. But while its token falls in price, business on Uniswap is better than ever. The coin, which launched on Wednesday, is the latest high-profile governance coin minted by a decentralized finance protocol. Uniswap is an automated market maker, meaning it facilitates token swaps. To swap, say, ETH for Uni, one can draw upon the reserves of the pairing provided by other users. Oh, God. It's it's hard to read that because that's all this shit is. That's all this is. It's just, I it, it's ridiculous. It's... And I really feel bad for some of the other people, but uh, we'll get into that later because I'm just, I just can't continue with this particular story because then it gets into sushi and you know me, man, I, I, the only reason I even tell you guys about this is so that you know what's going on. It has nothing to do with the fact that I like any of this. This is all bad news and it is going to get even worse with the daily train wreck. So I'm just going to, I'm going to get rid of that one. We do need to get into this one, though. Uh, This is out of the BBC.com, 20th of September, 2020. Uh, Is is there a name attached to this story that I can give? Uh, No? No? Okay. No, apparently they don't give a shit who writes it, so they don't even mention their name. Uh, BBC.com. This was on the 20th of September, 
FinCEN files all you need to know about the documents leak. So some uh, leaked documents hit. Uh, let's get the lowdown on, on what occurred with FinCEN. Leaked documents involving about $2 trillion of transactions have revealed how some of the world's largest banks have allowed criminals to move dirty money around the world. Of course, they're banks. They also showed how Russian oligarchs have used bank to, banks to avoid sanctions that were supposed to stop them getting their money into the West. It's the latest in a st string of leaks over the past five years that have exposed secret deals, money laundering, and financial crime. The FinCEN files are more than 2,500 documents, most of which were files that banks sent to the United States authorities between 2000 and 2017. They raise concerns about what their client might be doing. These documents are some of the international banking system's most closely guarded secrets. Banks use them to report suspicious behavior, but they are not proof of wrongdoing or crime. They were leaked to BuzzFeed News and shared with a group that brings together investigative journalists from around the world, which distributed them to 108 news organizations in 88 countries, including the BBC's Panorama program. Hundreds of journalists have been sifting through these dense technical documentations, uncovering some of the activities that banks would prefer the public not know about. FinCEN is the United States Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, these are the people at the U.S. Treasury who combat financial crime. Concerns about transactions made in U.S. dollars need to be sent to FinCEN, even if they took place outside of the United States. Suspicious activity reports, or SARs, are an example of how those concerns are recorded. <coughs> Excuse me. A bank must fill in one of these reports if it is worried one of its clients might be up to no good. The report is sent then to the authorities. If you are planning to profit from a criminal criminal enterprise, one of the most important things to have in place is a way of laundering the money. Laundering money is a process of taking dirty money and getting it into an account at a respected bank where it is will not be linked with the particular crime. The same process is needed if you are a Russian oligarch whom Western countries have taken sanctions against to stop you getting your money into the West. Banks are supposed to make sure that they don't help clients launder money or move it around in ways that break the rules. By law, they have to know who the client is. It's not enough to file SARs and keep taking dirty money from clients while expecting the authorities to deal with the problem. If they have evidence of criminal activity, they should stop moving the cash. Fergus Scheel from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists said that the leaked files were an insight into what banks know about the vast flows of dirty money across the globe. He said the documents also highlighted the extraordinarily large amounts of money involved. The documents in the FinCEN files cover about $2 trillion in transactions, and they are only a tiny proportion of the SAR submitted over that period. So what's been revealed? Okay, bullet point list. Here we go. HSBC allowed fraudsters to move millions of dollars in stolen money around the world even after it learned from the United States investigators that the scheme was a scam. <laughs> JP Morgan allowed a company to move more than $1 billion through a London account without knowing who owned it. Yeah, they did no KYC. We have to do it, but not if you're moving a billion dollars through J.P. Morgan. They don't give a shit about, about that person. They don't need to know your customer at that point. There's evidence that one of Pre Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest associates used Barclays Bank in London to avoid sanctions. Uh, let's see, the husband of a woman who's donated 1.7 million uh, British pounds sterling to the UK's governing conservative party 
was secretly funded by a, get this, a Russian oligarch with close ties to President Putin. The UK is called a higher risk jurisdiction and compared to Cyprus by the intelligence division of FinCEN, that's because of the number of UK registered companies that appear in the SARS. Over 3,000 UK companies are named in the FinCEN files more than any other country. <laughs> Thieven bastards. The United Arab Emirates Central Bank failed to act on warnings about a local firm which was helping Iran evade sanctions. Deutsche Bank moved money launder money ugh. Deutsche Bank moved money launderers dirty money for organized crime, terrorist and drug traffickers. Standard Chartered moved cash for Arab Bank for more than a decade after the clients accounts at the Jordan Jordanian bank had been used in funding terrorism. Dude, what on, on what planet do we live on at this point? I mean, this is all really bad and it's probably going to get a lot worse. And this time, because this is part of the same, this is part of the same leak that the Panama Papers came from. I mean, it's, I think it's probably that same group of people. I think people are just, they've just had enough. And we're starting to see what enough may look like. I don't know for sure. I hope we've had enough because this shit needs to stop, but I don't know. I've always been surprised in the past at just how much <coughs> bullshit the human spirit can take without breaking. Okay, now, continuing a little bit more with a, a detail in the FinCEN files, BNY Mellon processed $137 million for entities linked to OneCoin. This is this morning. Uh, Patty Baker's writing for Coindesk. Uh, one of America's oldest banks wired over $100 million in funds linked to the crypto Ponzi scheme OneCoin, according to a trove of documents leaked from the United States Financial Crimes Watchdog. In February of 2017, the Bank of New York Mel uh, Mellon, or BNY Mellon, flagged a number of transactions with the Financial Crimes en Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, it deemed suspicious as they appear to be layered, a money laundering technique that hides the sorts of funds through sending multiple transactions worth a combined $137 million. The bank said these transactions come from entities linked to OneCoin, a crypto scheme in the, uh, the United States government accused of being a Ponzi. It estimated OneCoin raised a total of $4 billion from investors, making it one of the most successful schemes of its kind ever. BuzzFeed received thousands of leaked suspicious activity reports or SARS from 2011 to 2017 that show instances when a bank's compliance team flagged a transaction they consider out of ordinary and possibly suspect with FinCEN. The file showed Deutsche, oh yeah, that goes on to, to say some of the other stuff, but uh, let's see if we get back into where it was doing the, yeah, let's see. BuzzFeed shared the FinCEN files with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which showed one particular transaction in 2016 where Finero Equity Investments, a British Virgin Islands-based company, wired approximately $30 million from its account at DMS Bank & Trust, a Cayman-based bank, to BNY Mellon. Finero described the payment as a loan for Crypto Real, an investment trust set up by OneCoin founder Ruja Ignatova, who has not been seen since late 2017. In a SAR filed at the time, BNY Mellon's compliance team said Finero often received wires from shell entities linked to OneCoin. It sent the money on to Hong Kong DBS Bank, where it was credited to a local company called Barta Holdings. Email seized by United States authorities last year shows Mark Scott, 
the New York attorney convicted last year of laundering $400 million for one coin arranged the $30 million loan from Finero to allegedly purchase an oil field from Barta Holdings. <clears throat> but the seized emails show that the loan was never repaid and the $10 million of the amount sent to Barta Holdings was actually spent by one of the OneCoin co-founders. I believe that 30 million uh, euros purported loan from Finero to Barta was arranged by Scott to launder OneCoin LTD proceeds to CC2, OneCoin's co-founder, said testimony from Special Agent Kurt Haffer attached to the New York attorney's office. A BNY Mellon spokesperson told ICIJ that the bank fully complied with existing financial regulation and took its role in, in protecting the integrity of the global financial system seriously. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> really? Seriously? You took it seriously? Oh, that's, that's nice. By law, they said the bank was unable to comment on specific SARs. Likewise, DMS Bank said it took its legal responsibilities for helping to combat fraud and money laundering, quote, extremely seriously. <laughs> this entire system's a fucking joke. I'm sorry. It's just coming out of a long, dark slumber is one of the most painful things ever. But out of a long, dark slumber, we must come. I'm so, Wake up. I took my... One of the, I'm one of the largest banks in the world, and I guarantee that I took my responsibilities extremely seriously, even though I clearly didn't. Wake up, man. OneCoin, Ruja Ignatova, and DBS Bank didn't respond to ICIJ's request or comment. Of course, Ruja's not going to... She's not going to respond. Nobody knows where the hell she is. I can only assume she got, like, plastic surgery done. Okay, that actually ends up doing it for the morning roundup. Daily train wreck brought to you by uh, Lee Quinn from CoinDesk. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's just going to make you cringe. All I really need is the headline, which reads, How Normies Are Getting Crypto Rich with DeFi. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, see, let's, let's, do, let's do the expanded one. Ethereum whales undoubtedly drive the decentralized finance movement but many people making money on DeFi trends are just regular Joes, so to speak. Between that headline and that particular statement, Miss Quinn is going to get people into trouble. This is exactly the story headline that you release at the top of a market cycle to make sure people FOMO into mortgaging their house and then subsequently living under a bridge. We saw it in 2017. There's no difference here. There's no difference. Whether it's an ICO or an altcoin or a fork coin off a of Bitcoin, it does not matter. This is market cycle hype. It's bullshit. It needs to stop. And I'm calling on Ms. Quinn to pull this article before somebody gets hurt. This is exactly how you get people hurt. And this is exactly why this is your smoldering pile steaming over there in the corner.
Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes, who says, Hey, Watson, is that mud on your shoes? No. Shit, Sherlock. Terrible joke to start what very well may be a terrible week. I don't I don't know if it's going to be bad or not. I just know I, I don't like waking up looking at, at a price drop of, of 300 bucks. Oh, wait a minute. I've been through this before. It doesn't really matter, does it? I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.